0: Hello and welcome to Mistakes We Made with me, Chris Sully.
1: And me, Alex Steger.
0: So this week we are joined by Mark Dowding, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Blue Bay Asset Management. For those of you who don't know, Blue Bay is owned by RBC. Canadian? Canadian, Alex.
1: Yeah, Royal, ba- Royal Bank of Canada. Yeah, no, it is. It is. It's Canadian. Big presence in the US global bank but yeah obviously
0: excellent well mark is the cio of uh, blue bay who operate mainly out of london he's been in the industry for a number of years mainly on european bonds absolute return bonds any kind of bonds really and i think we we cover that quite extensively today what did you think of mark i know we normally do this in the outro bit but thoughts ahead of going into the listen
1: yeah i, I there's quite a lot in there i mean we so we spoke to mark uh at the start of april Obviously, um, you know, it's an interesting year for bond markets, probably the most interesting year there has been for for, for a long time, certainly in the, the time that we've been covering markets, Chris, uh, you know, things actually selling off now uh, much, I suppose, in some ways, much harder to be a bond manager, but also uh, a period in which as a bond manager, you can really, you know, earn your crust by by making calls. And, you know, something Mark talked about was, you know, this is the time, you know, this is the time where contrarian calls could pay off and where, where you can sort of re- really make a difference. Um, but uh, it's challenging. And the timing of those calls, which is something we touch on, you know, it's one thing being right. But actually, you've got to be right at the right time to, 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 to you know, get those things to pay off, which I thought was maybe a little obvious when I say it like that, but, but he speaks about it well.
0: Well, I think he used his English charm because I also went back through and his, uh, he's subtly critical of many parts of the market. As you'll hear, private assets get a little bit of a, a talking about as, and what we're actually trying to do there. And also just general people's thought processes. There's, there's some interesting takes on herd mentality. And why are you doing what you're doing? I think that's a fundamental question that a lot of us should be asking not just
1: podcast hosts, people in general,
0: but it was something that came up as a sort of a through line of what he ends up talking about. Yeah,
1: but I mean, look, he, he was very frank. He made the point, as, as we're about to hear, that, you know, you can only be right a certain percentage of the times so you're going to make mistakes. Uh, and obviously, it's a little bit to do with how you learn from those and how you sort of essentially make better mistakes in the future or or indeed fewer, fewer mistakes. But um, no, I, I thought it was a, a really, really interesting conversation and, and great to have Mark on on the pod. Cool
0: okay so without further ado here is Mark Dowding. Mark thanks for joining us in in terms of the biggest investment mistake that you've made what was it what did you do about it and what do you learn from it?
2: So so that's a really great question uh, I mean I, I think the, um, the, the, the the place I'd choose to start my answer though is that I, I think as a macro investor um, uh, as someone who's been doing this for 25 years, I guess I learned very early on that uh, um, in this industry you're going to get a lot, lot of things wrong as well as getting uh, other things right. And in fact, in the context of being a macro investor, you're probably going to be wrong uh, around about sort of 48% of the time. Uh, and so, uh, in many respects, uh, to, to paraphrase Ray Dalio, uh, the, the idea of being a uh, a professional mistake maker, uh, I think, is something you, you always wear on your your business card. So you, you're not really scared of your mistakes. Obviously, you want to learn from your mistakes. Um, uh, I, I guess uh, in in terms, it's been a long career. If I if I was going to uh, uh, pick one from uh, more recent times, though, uh, I guess it would be um, uh, perhaps being too early in being bearish on um, on the outlook for inflation and bonds last year. Uh, I, I really was thoroughly convinced that uh, in the course of 2021 uh, we'd actually be seeing yields sell off. Um, obviously, it's, it's something that's really manifest in 2022. But last year was was a was a particularly frustrating time, you know, as an investor uh, having that view uh, and and listening to the Fed Reserve and others saying that inflation's just transitory and just thinking that this is this is wrong, this is wrong. But still, price action, obviously. Is is what you're paid to uh, invest and that was going in the other direction
1: and so you you not only thought that but you sort of adjusted your your strategies accordingly sort of prepping for inflation and then everything in last year
2: yeah very much um I, look we we took the uh, the view that if if you cast your mind back to uh, uh, sort of late 2020 we had the development of vaccines we got pretty optimistic that they vaccines would eventually prevail, and we would eventually exit pandemic. Um, and uh, we, we'd always thought that, sort of, through the uh, the COVID experience, policymakers had almost thrown far too much of the problem in many respects. I mean, you, they've got to be forgiven for this at the end of the day. It's, it's it's an unprecedented thing that we'd never seen before. But such was the magnitude of the policy response that we actually saw. We ended up with hardly seeing any demand shock at all in the global economy. It was much more of a a supply shock in the end. Uh, But we thought that as that pandemic started to unwind, if policymakers weren't rolling back some of that stimulus pretty quick, uh, you would well end up sort of seeing inflation overshooting and that transmitting into uh, higher bond yields. And we thought ultimately uh, losses across uh, both fixed income and equity uh, asset classes um, as mentioned, that, that's obviously uh, the, the chickens have come home to roost in 2022 so far. Uh, but uh, through much of 2021, uh, being someone on the more sort of bearish side of the equation was a tough call.
1: And I suppose, as, as a, you started here, and as, as a macro investor, and sort of saying, okay, the nature of it means that you're getting, you know, if, if you're doing it right, just shy of 50% of your calls. Um, Wrong. I guess my question is, how do you get better at it? Because you know, I think when we speak to, I don't know, when we speak to like fund buyers and things, you know, they they often sort of highlight one or two, you know, really bad managers that they pick, and they sort of you know, they, looking back, it's easy to identify the red flags, and and obviously then eliminate them in in the future. And ditto when you kind of to a degree, and I'm obviously oversimplifying here when you speak to sort of you know stock pickers and things. It's kind of similar. They sort of they, you know, there's some obvious lessons. You know, this this stock went wrong for this reason, and you know we learn not to you know to see those things in the future and, and avoid them but for these macro calls how do you how do you improve effectively because because it's it, it, it's it's different each time right
2: yeah yeah absolutely and and look i i would say that um a lot of this is is sort of uh learning by doing is 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 cultural it's uh it's about being uh able to be uh, to, to be sort of prepared uh to be sort of pretty humble as a risk taker uh, as well as having some confidence and arrogance at times to believe you're going to be right when the market is wrong, being able to be humble, I think, is incredibly important. Um, uh, I, I think sort of having this sort of learning mindset, um, and and also an understanding that you're you're not scared to to, to make mistakes, uh, and uh, where, where you do make mistakes, you own up to those mistakes. Uh, I think is uh, all very important. But um, a lot of this I'd, I'd, I'd sort of emphasize as a, a chief investment officer, you, you really try and embed in terms of the way in which a whole investment team is working, your whole ph- philosophy. And it's very much embedded in the context of the way in which you run an investment process. Uh, for example, at Blue Bay, um, we, we sort of rely a lot on our proprietary research. We're recording our research, we're logging our calls, we'll have Many different alpha sources on many different markets will have targets and and stop loss review levels, and so we'll we'll have a lot of discipline in terms of the way in which we're working, a lot of structure, and I think that if you have uh, the right structure, the the right sort of discipline, uh, the right culture, uh, and also a collegiate environment where it's not about sort of individuals who are lone wolves who are trying to run risk, but rather you're benefiting. Uh, properly from the collective wisdom from the team, you'll understand that uh, uh, you, you work sort of better if you can sort of harness that strength. And um, in all of that, I think over over the years, um, um, I've, I've certainly uh, uh, felt like I've become uh, a better better uh, risk taker uh, over time. Uh, I, I think when I started out in the industry, I was probably way too headstrong uh, as a kid. I I, I, I felt as if uh, uh, my way was the the highway, I, I'd got to be right, and everyone else had got to be wrong. Sometimes it was me against the world kind of thing. Uh, and you learn that even if you do have the right call, if you've if you've got your timing wrong, as I as I was recounting last year, uh, timing can be everything. So so making sure that you've got the right sort of um, uh, approach, so that you can stay in trades which are the right trades, and you're not forced to capitulate at exactly the wrong moment. All of these are sorts of things you want to learn as lessons as a risk take over time but it's very much learning
1: i was going to ask you because because you mentioned obviously a more recent mistake and it's funny because i think a lot of people when we speak to them they, they, they hark back to something they did when they were sort of young and they can blame it on being sort of <laughs> foolish and headstrong and obviously you know with age that, that all improves and things i mean do you think um that the mistakes you make now are sort of Better mistakes, as it were, compared to compared to those in the past.
2: Look, it's a it's a it's a very good question. I, I think that uh, uh, obviously I, I can I can think of particular anecdotes in my past where there there were things that were done maybe with a, a degree of uh, naivety. Uh, for example, um, in the run up to the, uh, the 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 financial crisis in two thousand and eight, uh, I think uh, uh, it, it was. Uh, far too easy to be blasé about sort of corporate bond positions because you had a an asset-backed security with a particular credit rating. It was AAA. You didn't almost need to do any analysis around it. So I, I certainly think that over time, uh, there there has been learning that has uh, uh, led you to become more rigorous, uh, less complacent. Uh, you, you've seen certain situations before. Um, and so I think the, the benefit of experience does does make you a stronger risk taker. It certainly should. Um, I'd like to think that I haven't reached the uh, the point in life where I've gone off the uh, the mental cliff just yet. I've got another good ten or fifteen years ahead of me. I would hope. Um, but um, in that context, it's interesting to observe, for example, even in recent times, how many investors in our industry have never actually uh, lived through a, a monetary policy tightening cycle. And so, when I've been sort of speaking. Uh, with policymakers and also with uh, other investors around sort of parallels. Uh, is this cycle going to look like the 0406 Fed tightening cycle that I invested through or like the 1994 Fed cycle I invested through? Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting when you realize a lot of the people in the room a lot of the time, uh, they weren't actually around as investors through those particular times. So they, they have less of a, a mental roadmap to actually help them. So actually accrued learning should actually uh, – help you correct some of the worst uh, of the mistakes that you might make, uh, I would suggest.
0: That's what I was going to ask about in terms of the fact that you have been through these cycles and we are now in a period where we've got inflation, we've got rate rises, and some of the managers that even have got a 10-year track record probably haven't encountered this to this level. How can you impart that knowledge to younger bond managers? And I suppose is that a key part of what a CIO has to do these days?
2: Well, I I think you're you're on a great um, topic, actually, and a a point that I wanted to move on to because uh, I think... uh, Yeah, it's great to think that there is this accrued learning, but I think one of the things which has been especially damaging during the pandemic has been the whole sort of work from home thing and how uh, that has really sort of limited the ability to develop um, uh, and improve uh, the talent that you have. Um, And I think that uh, a lot of that comes from being on the desk, learning uh, or uh, overhearing conversations that other colleagues may be having. Um, uh, you kind of need that sort of uh, interaction, which is why I've always thought that uh, those who have sort of been too keen to embrace uh, a work from home uh, type situation almost think it can be actually a, a slightly selfish way to actually approach the world of work. Because I think those of us who are lucky uh, to have had a, a successful career uh, almost have a, a duty, a right, an obligation to to pass on some of that accrued learning to 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 those who are coming through. And actually uh, attaining that uh, understanding so so yes, it is helpful to get those um, uh, perspectives uh, across uh, and something that we feel passionate about and, and I think the the other philosophy that i 've always had as a, as a cio is I, I, I tend to think of uh, running an investment firm. I hate the idea of any uh, any sort of firm structured like a, a pyramid like a high marquee with Uh, one senior guy at the top of it. This is not my philosophy at all. That's how you run an army. It shouldn't be how you think about investing. Investing has probably got more in parallel with professional sport. And in that context, I like to think of uh, myself as a CIO effectively assembling a team, organising my players on the pitch where I'm trying to get everyone as the best possible player in every position. And then actually through the tools that we've developed, uh, actually uh, give those individuals as much feedback and much data in terms of what they get right, what they get wrong, so they can actually learn better, they can learn faster. In the same way a tennis coach would show percentages on the backhand or the forehand or on serve or something like this, Uh, we've built uh, sort of proprietary tools to help uh, demonstrate to risk takers? Are they booking profits too early? Are they running losses too long? Um, do they make more money long or short? Um, uh, what are their uh, inherent biases as risk takers? I wanted to take one moment there because we sort of started this with
1: talk, talking about the crisis, you know, for, for example, the financial crisis, the last sort of, um, you know, major and difficult sort of period in which, you know, bond managers have, have faced and Chris made the point, a lot of managers, even with a 10 year record, weren't there for that. And um obviously you spoke about a lot of things just then new processes perhaps new ways of thinking new ways of uh understanding how you're doing things and, and, and researching alpha and stuff which probably have, probably didn't exist going into that crisis and things just just thinking about that time um what were the biggest lessons that you learned from it or you know or, or and perhaps even what was sort of what were the biggest scars is perhaps the wrong word but but you know what i mean what what were the things that left left, left a mark on you uh as a result of that time
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the the takeaways that I I really look back on is is the idea that liquidity can be a a mile wide, but it's only ever an inch deep. Uh, In the moments where you need liquidity, uh, you can often find it's not there and you don't ever, ever, uh, as an asset manager, ever want to be caught on the wrong side of a a liquidity asymmetry. I think that would be a a particular takeaway that I'd observe. I also highlighted the fact that uh, um, how it's important to to really sort of do proprietary research um, on all of the assets that you're owning in your portfolio. You're not falling back too much on um, external research that may be coming from third-party vendors. And also understanding um, uh, the, the nature of leverage and, and how leverage works and, and how um, you can have structures with a, a lot of leverage. I remember uh, almost uh, one of my better trades I did was I remember sort of having a view uh, in subprime mortgages. I'd seen subprime mortgages start to go wrong very early, um, and uh, uh, but um, there, there were actually residual securities, almost the equity tranche of a subprime residual. Um, I, was, um, I was happy to sell the AAA-rated packaged version of that at a price of par, and within a month it was trading at zero. Uh, and it was uh, phenomenal to think that a AAA asset could be worth nothing uh, in the space of a month.
0: That must have a huge impact on the way that you can allocate. And one thing we've spoken about previously, Mark, is, is outflows. And, and I, we spoke in probably 2016 about a huge amount of outflows from one of your absolute return strategies. How much does that impact decision making as well? Because I suppose you can only guide investors to a certain extent. And if you have one big institutional client decide they want to do something else, I suppose you have to be very flexible in that sense.
2: Yeah. So I think there, I, I think the first thing that you'd say is that you, you always need to make sure that you're. The strategies you're running, the liquidity terms you're offering to investors, uh, are consistent with the uh, uh, liquidity that is available to you in the market. So, so that's uh, that that sort of goes without saying. Uh, I think the um, the second observation is that, uh, for example, within an investment process like ours. Um, every asset that we own has got a liquidity score that's attached to it that will determine the maximum position size that we can own across the, the Blue Bay platform. Because we don't want to end up in a situation where uh, we're, we're trapped in, in things that we're struggling to, uh, to sell in products where we're offering sort of more regular uh, liquidity. <clears throat> but I think the third mechanism that's actually helped the European fund industry to a degree in recent years has been the introductions of mechanisms such as swing pricing. Uh, and, and, and here again, uh, this has been something which has been a, a beneficial sort of step to make sure that we can protect investors um, from transaction costs that may occur uh, during sort of challenging market circumstances. It's not a, a mechanism that exists in all uh, jurisdictions, like in the US, for example, you don't get this in, in 40 act funds. Uh, but. Um, but yeah, the whole sort of uh, story around liquidity is, is, is always going to be an interesting one. And I think the, the other observation to, to offer here is it's it's ironic sometimes hearing about some investors saying, we love private assets, we love private debt, because they have no volatility. but well, they don't have any volatility because these assets aren't marked to market. So a lot of this can be quite superficial. So actually understanding um, uh, what, what you're actually investing in uh, and the inherent uh, properties of that asset i think is uh is something that all investors uh shouldn't ever be complacent around
1: you spoke at the beginning about you know i guess how you had slightly misforecast, you know where, where rates would be where inflation would be last year and things um but ultimately you know that you know turned out to be right just you know you're early on it what are the mistakes that you're seeing other people make in the market i like, guess you know start, starting with the, you know, the, the 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 bond side of things where are you seeing people get things wrong do you think
2: Well, well, oddly, I would say I would actually look back uh, last year as a a very curious year in many respects. I feel as if I was actually very right on my projections on growth, very right on the projections on inflation uh, and indeed on on central banks. The thing that I was wrong about was that bond yields wouldn't be bothered at all by any of those developments. So you'd end up surprising. It was it was bloody surprising to me. I can I can I can confess. I mean, as, as much uh for, for some time, I was uh, scratching my head saying, um, uh, when will the market wake up and smell the coffee? Uh, this inflation is going higher uh, and it's going to stay uh, high for a period until monetary policy does something about it to actually rein back financial conditions. So I was surprised at that time. I, I, I thought through that period, I, I, was, I was surprised at the attitude of many other investors and this almost of... Um, insistence to almost cling to a narrative of um, secular stagnation one of the the mistakes I see many investors make um, uh, frequently is that your point of reference will always be framed uh, by sort of price action over the last one or two years or the last three or four years um, uh, and so people will say uh, well um, uh, bond yields are negative uh, they will always be negative as if it's some sort of a, um, a sensible sort of a uh, equilibrium and status quo, but it it never looked like a, a sensible equilibrium. You ask for yourself uh, in in sober moments, you'll say to yourself, "What am I? Uh, what on earth am I doing buying assets uh, which are actually going to pay me be- back less than I actually pay for them uh, if I hold them to maturity? This seems like a a daft thing to be investing uh, my investors' monies in, you know. So so you you can stand back quite simply and say, "What on earth were people doing? But everyone was doing it." Uh, this sort of herd mentality, uh, this sort of framing of reference in terms of uh, artificial time periods. I think th- this is where I think mistakes are commonly made. Um, and um, and this sort of whole sense of herding uh, can also mean that you end up with, uh, uh, there'll be periods where everyone will rush from one side of the boat to the other side of the boat very quickly. Uh, uh, I think um, uh, investors sometimes can be lemmings, Uh, And this isn't helped by the fact that actually you have uh, a lot of systematic models which will actually jump on trends, knowing that there are a lot of lemmings, uh, and so they'll actually exacerbate this movement from side to side. Um, But I think the one thing that I'd observe here is that if you're a skilled investor, if you're prepared to take um, uh, contrarian views from time to time, uh, actually, uh, this speaks to a world where there should be more volatility, more opportunity, uh, and the job of me as an investor really is to take the volatility that exists in any market and use my skill to effectively monetize that volatility and deliver a return through my skill that's where that's where people use jargon like alpha but alpha comes from two things volatility and, and our ability uh, our skill to actually harness to to monetize that volatility so I need people to to make mistakes and and herd and be lemmings otherwise. Is it
0: tougher to be a contrarian or are you waiting for that opportunity to be a contrarian? Is that the way that you do generate alpha as you wait for everybody to start moving or be the first one to move?
2: well i think the um, that there's no uh, there's no secret source here in a way there's not a magic answer as this is what you need to do and it always generates good results. i go back to the start of the conversation i i'm still going to be wrong forty eight percent at the time but but that forty eight uh fifty two uh, 52, uh why is 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 good enough for us to deliver uh, good results um but i i would say that um um uh, obviously in terms of uh sort of being able to put trades on uh, understanding the, uh, the 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 the, uh, uh, the the pricing reference through the lens of the fundamental analysis that you 're doing on a proprietary basis, understanding the point of uh, valuation and understanding the underlying market technicals they're the three lenses in which you should look at any asset through um, and if you can be convinced on all of those three fronts what you 're almost doing as an investor is almost building a forward looking Expected return profile, and if you can see like a skew of outcomes where uh, the outcomes are skewed more in one direction than the other, uh, then that's really the genesis for where you look to actually take risk uh, and put your 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 stake on the table and say, "I want to be long" or "I want to be short." Uh, that's obviously the, uh, the the way in which you want to work as an investor. And that
1: that that's really interesting, Mark, and thank you. And, and- aside from investors making these mistakes and other things are there you know over you, you touched on this you had a you said your words so i'm not being rude you know a lengthy ish career uh, although you know not 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 over the hill yet yeah? again again sort of your phrasing but who are the investors over the years that you've admired whether on the bond side equity side you know macro across the board are there any sort of um things that you've read or people that you've watched or just anyone that you've learned from or worked with that you sort of have a lot of a lot of time for that have sort of I I suppose such as this exists help help shape your approach and your your philosophy towards investing
2: yeah uh, I mean uh, yeah looking back uh, when I started investing I had plenty of hair on my head look at me now it's a As bald as a coop, right? So, um,
1: listeners, not my words, but you can't see this. Mark has, yeah, doesn't have as much hair as you could have.
2: Okay, yeah, I've, I've, I've uh, I've not got too much hair on my bonds, but, but yeah, if if I if I look back over the years, I I can think of um, uh, uh, many uh, sort of great uh, visionary investors, who, who, uh, uh, some of whom I've been fortunate enough to to work with, others uh, who I've known uh, and worked uh, alongside or, or met over the years. Um, whether you're you're talking about people like Soros or Lewis Bacon, whether you're uh, talking about people like Alan Howard or or, um, or, or, or others like Ray Dalio at Bridgewater, there there are many sort of individuals who over the years you've looked up to and thought um, you've you've managed to deliver outstanding returns to your investors. um, uh, And um, uh, you're certainly someone um, uh, who who, who you can learn something from. Uh, There have also been... Um, investors, like for many years, someone like Bill Gross was a, a great name in fixed income. In um, some of these individuals, have had um, uh, big flaws as well, flaws in terms of how they've managed teams, led teams, how they've made mistakes that have eventually, in some cases, nearly blown them up. Um, but there certainly have been sort of times when you've thought, uh, yes, I, I can, I, I can hold you in a, a degree of esteem as someone who is. Uh, who's delivered skill uh, and managed to do a good job um, uh, for, for the clients you manage money for. Because at the end of the day, as a portfolio manager, you always wear the burden, the responsibility. It's not my money. Uh, it's not my team's money that we're investing. It's the, the money that our clients entrust us with. Uh, and the uh, the motivation here is very much to, to win and succeed uh, because um, we, we want to see our clients do well.
0: We've asked you the biggest mistake, Mark. It's only fair we also ask, what's, what's been your biggest achievement? What's the call that you got right that nobody else did or the one that you're most proud of?
2: Um, again, I, I feel as if it's been a while, so I could, I could pick many. Um, uh, I'd like to think that I can pick money, but I think maybe the call that I was most proud about was uh, being the contrarian back in uh, 2012, who was uh, very much convinced that at the time, uh, the speculation that the Eurozone was going to fall apart uh, was misplaced. Uh, And actually, policymakers would push back uh, and win the battle against some of the American hedge funds who were convinced that uh, the eurozone was going to bit. So through that period, uh, owning lots of bonds in Greece and Italy and Spain and Portugal and even Ireland, where I was buying bonds at 50 cents on the dollar, um, uh, it it was uh, uh, at the time, uh, it felt like a, a very ballsy, very contrarian thing to be doing. Um, uh, when everyone else was screaming that the euro was coming to an end. Uh, But that was a a particular period where I felt that uh, um, uh, we we were right uh, and we were proven to be right. uh, And we really made a a strong name for ourselves. So I think uh, when I look back at my career one day, that will always be a period that I look back at with a degree of fondness.
0: Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was reminded just before this call that you actually – during that eurozone period, I actually got to put a question directly to Mario Drahi, and if I'm not mistaken, you introduced yourself as Mark Dowding of Citywire because you were there with a colleague of ours, a former colleague of ours, during the meeting in Frankfurt. So that was more just to say, is that actually what happened? I, I've been told it, but I, I didn't see it myself.
2: Um, well, uh, well, the the, uh, the the press conference was televised, so uh, there's no there's no backing out of it for me. Uh, and 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 obviously, in the in the days since, I, I I did have a bit of a. A joke and got slightly chastised by some of my friends within the uh, ECB board. Uh, but yes, I, I happened to be in Frankfurt that day, and um, it, it was uh, a moment where I, I I knew my way into the ECB and had lunch in the canteen and thought I'd rather watch the press conference live than in a hotel room. But then uh, uh, when um, when Draghi was uh, uh, unveiling his plans, I think my excitement got the uh, the better of me, and metaphorically, I was the the fan who jumped uh, onto the pitch and, and wanted to kick the ball uh, by putting my hand up and asking a question. And so uh, I was very thankful of Emily at City Wire, uh, who I did promise uh, when I saw the look on her face after I asked the question that uh, I would be writing all of her ECB commentaries for the next two years if she did lose her job. I was going to say, we, you, you still owe us some
1: uh, articles actually from around that time, Mark.
2: But I'm, I'm very glad that she didn't lose her job uh, uh, and we kept in contact, became good friends, uh, and um, and and in latter years, uh, it's, it's certainly been one of those stories that we can look back on uh, and smile. L- life is too short. Life is for living. Uh, and one of the things I always say here is that we work hard, we play hard, but we also want to be in a working environment that's fun because you learn um, in a culture that is fun. You stay together in a culture that is fun. So, so yeah, uh, I've always wanted to put some of the fun back into fund management. Uh, But maybe that day I did go a a tad too far. So that was Mark Dowding. Alex, thoughts?
0: Now we've listened through again. Anything that jumped out at you? Anything you thought was either alarming or or
1: intriguing? Yeah, I mean, look, Mark was very open and honest, you know, saying, you know, there's there's not many jobs where you can say, hey, look, I get it wrong 48% of the time. um, And and people aren't like, wait, hang on that. Sounds incredibly high. But obviously, look as, as we know, these things are incredibly difficult. And, and actually, you know, getting something right in markets 52% of the time is is impressive. Um, what I would say though, despite having said that, he was clever in his mistakes. His mistakes that he gave us, they're like, they're like, I was I was wrong, or was I right, but too soon. Which can yeah, sound right a at the bit like the wrong time. Humble, yeah, which can sound like a humble brag, I suppose, if one was being critical. But what I would say is, you know, um he he was He was honest about that i think he spoke through the sort of permutations of that quite well and and obviously you know timing is a big is a big thing in markets isn't it trying trying to get those things right and obviously um he wasn't wrong for too long which i guess is sort of you know the the humble brag element of the mistake in that you know it ultimately you know he was you know he got the call right and just just a little bit ahead of things
0: i think i'm fairly indoctrinated because i took 52 percent to be really impressive I don't think I'm 52% right in anything I do. So I think that's a really good return.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, look, investment wise, no, yeah, absolutely not. I would hope that I'm getting like more than 52% of, I don't know, headlines, edits, those kind of things, right? But if I'm traced. honest. But yeah, but look, uh, you know, journalism is frankly easier than, <laughs> than making big macro calls on the market. Our bosses might listen to it. Yeah, there's a reason that we, you know, generally paid significantly less uh, than fund managers. So I think, you know, The market's got that right. I thought there were some interesting things that he said. I thought uh, we've heard this from a lot of people now, but, you know, these sort of bubbling concerns about private markets, I Mm. I think um, that's interesting, particularly as we move into sort of more volatile times or 2022 being more volatile. So um, some of these private markets look a lot more attractive, don't they, because you haven't got that volatility. And just his thoughts on, you know, whether that's really a true reflection of of the underlying assets, um, I thought was was a good point.
0: Well, I think that's really important because, like you said in the intro, or touched upon in the intro, it's really weird time to be a bond manager. You're being asked to do different things. And I think that sort of – he's probably having that private markets conversation more than he's ever had it, just for people wanting some sort of income. And it seemed like – I mean, probably putting words in his mouth slightly – there was a little bit of pushback. Are we doing the right thing? Is this the right thing for everyone? So, I mean, my takeaway from it was his – He's very conscious, and this might be the cio part of him of are we doing the right thing for the right people, and maybe that's a big question that more people should be asking
1: yeah, absolutely and um I also thought that he's sort of you know asking about macro forecasting and that, you know we sort of touched on how maybe that's you know very hard to learn sort of. Each time how many lessons can you take away from a previous scenario and and, and sort of apply to a future one but how he sort of says you, know, you basically sort of turn to process and turn to culture and if you could get those things right and sort of put yourself in a position to make the best decisions then actually that that's how you you could learn rather than trying to sort of study every past event and uh project those forwards i think they echo something from a from Seasoned listeners, uh, hard, the hardcore might remember when we spoke to Simon Hallett at uh, Harding and He sort of had a different asset class, you know, different country, etc. But uh, a, a kind of similar thing, which is actually it's about it's about decision making itself. And if you can just you know actually work on better behaviours and better culture and better process, that that's how you can make decisions um, better. What, what do we call the super fans?
0: Mistakers. Makers? Mistakes I think for makers? The, I think
1: the mistaken, I think, is probably what they you know, uh, should, should be referred to as. Uh, well, one thing
0: that really jumped out for me also, as always, self-referential, the CityWire story, him turning up from an ECB meeting and presenting himself as a CityWire journalist. I think that that is kudos for us. Or is that just an in for him?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, um, well, it's a sort of scandal waiting to happen, isn't it? You know, a fund manager masquerading as a journalist to get, uh, well, it's not quite inside information. It's a press conference, so it's, it's the definition of outside information. <laughs> um, but yeah, fair play to him for finding an innovative way to have a, you know, a small edge, I guess. Um, yeah. So yeah I, I, think, I think investors and readers alike should be happy
0: with that. Cool. So that was Mark Dowding. And it's goodbye from me, Chris Slowly.
1: And goodbye from me, Alex Tiga.